Stephen Florin is a developer advocate on the Angular team, actually the developer relations lead on the Angular team at Google. We recently talked about uh, some technical stuff on performance in Angular and uh, Ionic. If you want to improve your Angular Ionic applications, uh, this is worth listening to and I hope you enjoy it. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Of course, thank you so much for having me. All right. So first of all, uh, can you introduce yourself uh, to the audience sure. so they get to know who you are? Yeah. So my name is Stephen Fluin. I am a developer advocate on the Angular team at Google. So I lead our developer relations. And so my my role really at Google has two parts. The first part is to help developers and organizations be successful with Angular. And the second is to understand what it's like being a Angular developer in the real world so that we can reflect those needs onto the team as we're continuing to evolve the platform. Uh, so on a day-to-day -day basis, I work with a lot of large companies and partners that use Angular. I manage our GDE program, uh, and I speak at a lot of conferences, and I build a lot of apps with Angular. Oh, great. great. Um, there are a lot of things I would like to talk to you about. Uh, I have a lot of questions about Angular that I'd like to ask, but... Uh, my main goal here is to talk about performance, which I know is uh, is something the Angular team takes uh, seriously. Um, so as Ionic developers, uh, we've been using Angular since uh, Ionic 1, first version. And, uh, awesome. Yeah. Uh, sometimes uh, some of the developers tend to do certain things or do not do certain things, and it affects uh, performance. Uh, with the app. So, so my goal here is to help uh, the audience, or all of us, so we can get to see what we should do, what we shouldn't do, uh, so we, we can uh, have uh, faster apps using Angular uh, framework. Awesome. I, I think so, that's a, a really good goal, and I, I think that aligns, just like you said, with a lot of things that the Angular team is trying to do. So one of our, our core values is apps that users love to use. And performance is a big part of that. When a user has a faster app, they're more likely to continue to want to engage in it and be happy to do so. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, uh, for, first of all, what is ng-zone? What is that? Sure, sure. So, uh, zones.js, uh, or the, uh, one of the, is one of the polyfills that we include in your applications. So, we created zones to solve this fundamental problem in change detection, which is, Someone has to let you know when something has changed. Um, and a lot of things we can detect kind of automatically in Angular. So when a event happens, um, when you trigger a lifecycle event with a component, when you render a component, all these things are part of Angular and we can detect them very, very easily. But in JavaScript and in, in HTML, there's a lot of things that are harder to detect when they've happened. Uh, and so what we did is we created uh, Zone.js, which is kind of a separate JavaScript project that, that we rely on heavily. And what Zone.js does is it monkey patches uh, a lot of the asynchronous events that happen in the browser, like timeouts, like uh, web requests, right? like XML HTTP requests. Um, and then 
we were able to detect where they originated from. So by understanding who initiated a, a timeout or an XML HTTP request, we can say, hey, was this an Angular thing? Where, where did this come from in the application? Where did this come from in the page? And then we can automatically trigger change detection um, as part of that asynchronous event. Okay. Again, how, how, what does uh, this have to do with the performance? Sure. So, uh, zones is, is really a nicety for developers. Um, what, it, uh, the original intent was, was that if you in your JavaScript wanted to create a timeout, uh, and then do something after the timeout completes, we would, um, both be able to understand that the timeout was created by your Angular application by a specific component or part of your application. Um, so it originated in the ng zone, so to say. And then we could trigger change detection only when that asynchronous event uh, happened. And so uh, the way that this comes into performance is because you have to be a little bit aware of when uh, zones is triggering change detection because you you might accidentally be triggering it too often via zones. So a, a great example of this is um, if you have a bunch of events such as asynchronous uh, things that are happening in your browser, that could be triggering zones more often than you intend to, or you could be triggering change detection more often than you intend to. We, we see this happening uh, in a lot of uh, hybrid applications. So if you're trying to run AngularJS and Angular at the same time, uh, AngularJS might be triggering change detection in your Angular app. Uh, and the reason that this all matters for performance is because change detection is actually one of the most expensive things that happens. So we, we've made it, it uh, more than 10 times faster than it was in AngularJS, but uh, it's still, we basically have to check all of your components, uh, depending on how you have them configured, uh, and then rerun all of the expressions to say, hey, did something change as part of this application that we need to re-render? Okay. okay. So how do we solve this? Since uh, it's always a check-in, and if you have a lot of uh, components, it will check everything. So what's the uh, best practice? What should we do? Sure. So there's really two sides to this this problem, uh, because you you want to reduce the number of times you're triggering change detection, and second you want to reduce the amount of time it takes to do change detection. Uh, so on the reducing the number of times uh, change detection is run, it's really important to if if you are running into performance issues to kind of whip out the Chrome Dev Tools Flame Chart, and what the Flame Chart will show you is um, it will show you what parts of your application are triggering change detection. I, I was working on a project a few weeks ago, and one of the things I was noticing was that, for example, uh, AngularFire, which is a, a really cool library for accessing Firebase within Angular, uh, the AngularFire auth um, module actually triggers something like change detection every 300 milliseconds or three seconds, I, I, I forget. Um, and we, we had a developer that was uh, accidentally creating multiple connections to that same backend. So instead of sharing a an auth flow, they, they had each of their individual components and actually, uh, which actually created hundreds of connections back to that Firebase backend. And each of those hundreds of connections had a this 300 millisecond timer on it. And so change section was running kind of hundreds of times a second. Uh, and so you could see that in the flame chart because every, every few couple milliseconds, the entire change detection cycle would run in the performance, and, and that was really, really slowing down the application. And so if you, if you pull out the flame chart and look for how often things are happening in your app, uh, that can be a key indicator of maybe you're running change detection too often. 
The the other side of that is, uh, let's say that you're you're running change detection at the meaningful moments as part of your application. Uh, you should now look at reducing the size and difficulty of the change detection pass. And so, uh, Angular's actually got a very very efficient change detection. So we we do a uh, depth first search of your Angular application, saying, hey, based on this view, should we change detect each of its templates? And then what we do is we just recurse down your component hierarchy. So because we have this very nice kind of directed component hierarchy, we can do all of it in a single pass, and we know there's not going to be side effects. But what you can actually do is you can dive in and you can take a deeper control of which components are being change detected. And the, the number one strategy cool. there is called on push. So in the decorator for a component, so if you know the at component decorator at the top of an Angular component, you can add another piece of metadata that's called change detection strategy. And you can set that strategy to something called on push. And what that does is it puts it in kind of a, a more of a pure mode. And what it says is basically this component will only change if one of its inputs change or one of its um, observables emits a new value. And so via this kind of contract, the application can get much smarter about when it needs to check that component subtree. And so uh, if a component is on push, then none of its children will get checked unless something changes. And, and this, this actually means that uh, you could take the entire change action graph and cut it in half or more, depending on what your component structure looks like. Oh, okay, okay. So, um, uh, are there other strategies that you can use? For um, yeah, so, I mean, so on push is definitely the one that, uh, if you think about like 80 20, it's, it's 20% of the work and it's going to give you 80% of the value. Um, but depending on your application, uh, Angular gives you a lot of other controls as well. So, uh, for example, you can actually inject the change detector service itself. And you can take complete control of change detection. So we, we had a example of a, a big financial firm and they were, they were doing a test of Angular and they wanted to stress test and see how far they could push it. And so they, they derived this, um, somewhat arbitrary, uh, challenge to themselves, which was they wanted to show a number of stocks on the screen at the same time, but they wanted each stock to have a 50 millisecond, uh, pipe or basically a 50 millisecond WebSocket stream coming in where it was emitting new data. And so with each of the stocks on the screen getting their own new data every 50 milliseconds, they wanted to see how many stocks on the, the screen that they could see. So they went from something like 200 uh, on screen at a time to up to something like 500 with on push. Uh, but when we talked to them, we, we wanted to push that they could actually go further with this. And so what they did was they manually took control of change section by injecting that change section service and then they they would explicitly detach nodes from the tree, and then they would only run the change detector when they uh, explicitly knew that something wanted to change. So they actually set up their own change detection lifecycle, um, and this is something you can do in Angular. So we don't recommend this for most developers because it's it's kind of overkill. But if you have some very complex, some very beautiful application that you're you know exactly when you need to re-render, you know exactly when something's changed, uh, you can take fine-grained control of the change section, attaching and detaching nodes from it and triggering it exactly when you want. So there, there's this concept of, in the change structure, you can det completely detach a component, you can mark a component dirty, or you can trigger the change structure entirely. Okay, so so let me see what I get you right. 
So you can use the auto-push uh, strategy uh, to help reduce uh, the number of times uh, uh, the component uh, checks uh, for changes. Mm -hmm. Yep. Or you can you can use the service uh, where. So if I'm right, uh, when you use a service, it, it means that uh, no change detection is done. So you, you use the service to manually check. For you, you, you can do it either way. So you can manually um, tell the application which ones are dirty, okay. or you can completely kind of disable the automatic change detection. So uh, one of the things you can do with zones is, is you can actually turn it off. Um, so you, you can completely turn off zones as part of your application. Uh, or you can, uh, we, one of the features we added in the last couple of years was the ability to blacklist certain events. So you could say, don't trigger change detection from mouse move events or um, timeout events, things like that. And so uh, by combining these strategies of taking things out of the zones, uh, triggers for change detection, and then manually marking things for dirty, manually uh, running change detection entirely, you, you really take full control of the whole process. Okay, okay, okay. So, uh, is there any other thing you would like to add to the chain detection uh, performance? No, I, I, I mean, I think if you reduce the frequency of when the chain detection runs, uh, and you reduce the size and the complexity of a chain detection, that that is uh, going to do a really great job. Uh, maybe one more thing I'll call out on the reducing the complexity of chain detection. So. One of the anti-patterns that we see some people use is using methods in their templates. And so when you yeah. use a method in your template, we actually have to run that method uh, every time we evaluate that template. Uh, so let's say that you had a uh, uh, a method that was like, oh, look up data X, right? If you, instead of looking up data X every time in your template, uh, as part of that expression, if you used and turned that into a pipe, we actually do some intelligent caching with that so that we only run pipes uh, when the left side of a pipe has changed. So let's say you, you want to take like a post uh, ID from some loop that you're iterating over. And if you turn that method into a pipe instead, we'll only run it when the ID changes. And so the, that level of intelligent caching can also speed up your change detection. Okay, okay. So it's a bad idea to uh, compute in our templates. Yes, yes, in general. We, we want to minimize the amount of stuff we're, we're having to compute as part of change detection. And rather use uh, pipes. Yes, I mean, for, for simple calculations and things like that, it doesn't matter too much. But uh, if you have some intensive process, uh, it, it definitely can help. And it, it's kind of funny where that caching actually originated from. Uh, it originated from some of the built-in pipes that we built. So if you if you think about date and currency and things like that, uh, a lot of these uh, formatting and, and display niceties are actually a little bit more expensive than you might think at first glance. Um, properly formatting a uh, currency internationalized with a bunch of different settings um, can do can involve a bunch of lookups. It can involve a bunch of calculations. And so th those sort of things, we, we didn't want to make the user pay for them as part of every uh, change section pass because the, the data on the left almost never changes, right? And so that, that's where the original caching came from. Uh, but now it's, okay. it's really a best practice for any sort of data processing you want to do in your template. Okay, okay. Uh, what about uh, track by? How does that also help? 
Yeah, yeah, trackback can can help a ton. So uh, if you're using uh, the ng4 structural directive or star ng4, um, you're given a list. And generally what Angular is going to do is it's going to try and be intelligent about not re-rendering all of the items in the list every time something changes. Uh, so, but one of the things you can do to help us with that is you can give a track by. And so effectively what you're doing is you're giving us um, an index for the, the list. Uh, and then what we do is we use that for the intelligent caching again so that uh, we can know that if a subset of that list didn't change, uh, and we know because the IDs still match by the track by, then we're not going to reevaluate them. We're not going to re-render them. So if you have a list with a thousand items, uh, that can be a really big deal because we can use the, the track by to identify those changes. Okay. 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 Right. Because if I have a list so of a thousand things and I, I add one, we want to do one DOM operation to add the thing. We don't want to move remove a thousand things and add a thousand and one things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, that, that's true. So um, what we've talked about uh, change strategy uh, on push. We've talked about not computing uh, stuff in templates and uh, um, using async. Uh, sorry, uh, using pipes as possible and also track by. Um, can you tell us about lazy loading? There's a problem. Uh, what is lazy loading, and what? Uh, how does the webpack come into this? Sure. So lazy loading is the strategy of taking JavaScript out of the critical path for our page and loading it as needed. So uh, this is actually a strategy that we built into the core of Angular using the router, where, um, for example, if you have a really complex application with a thousand components, let's say, uh, if you if you followed a naive approach and didn't use lazy loading, the browser would actually have to go and parse all of the code for those thousand components. And especially when you're talking in an ionic context um, where you've got a, a lower power mobile CPU, parsing all of that code, even if you're not using it, is uh, really inefficient and can definitely slow down the, the use of your application. And so what we've done with uh, Angular is we've built lazy loading intelligence into our router. So uh, you can split your application up at the module level by instead of referring to a component synchronously, you can say load children in your router config. And then what will happen is Webpack will identify those boundaries, those load children boundaries, and split the code into separate JavaScript chunks. So if you can imagine a, an application where maybe it's split up into um, an edit module, an admin module, a user preferences module, a dashboard module, all, all these different modules, uh, if you lazy load all of them, then the application can be really intelligent about only loading the code that you need for a given route, right? So when the application boots up, you probably only need the dashboard module, and we shouldn't make the user wait, and we shouldn't make the user pay to, to get all the other code. Um, and so lazy loading actually is a, a really big deal. Um, it's, it's a big deal on the web because you both have to pay for the bandwidth, so like the, the time it takes to download all of those extra modules, uh, but then also that parse time that I talked about where it actually has to load into memory um, all of those thousand components, uh, and that, that can actually be a very, very slow process. Yeah, yeah. So let me ask this. Uh, how do you determine how much to put in a module? Uh, how to split your code? How, how do you determine that? Sure. So that that's actually a, a tough question, just because it comes uh, into the idea of how how do you want to architect your application. But 
in general, I, I would say leaning towards a little bit smaller is going to be better. Um, I see some people take this a little bit too far, where, for example, they'll have a module for every component. Um, that will work, but it's it's just a bunch more work to maintain. It's a bunch more overhead when you have components that are part of the same feature set and will be needed together. Um, so I tend to kind of group these sorts of things um, by uh, user experience or user flow. So different parts of my application, um, like I was saying, if you've got a home page, split out that home page. If you've got um, a preferences drawer, uh, split out that preferences drawer. If you've got maybe tabs at the, the root level of your application, imagine splitting up each of those tabs uh, so that your user only has to pay for one tab at any given time. Okay, okay, okay. I get it now. All right. So um, now, <laughs> my, my next uh, question. What is a build optimizer flag? Does it help in uh, performance? So the, the build optimizer flag uh, definitely does help performance. Uh, most developers shouldn't actually have to worry about that. So, so what you're referring to is oh, okay. if you, if you do an ng build dash dash build optimizer, uh, we actually do a bunch of extra steps in the middle of the compilation. So there's, there's a lot of steps going on here. So there's the TypeScript transpilation where we take TypeScript and turn it into JavaScript. There's the Angular compilation that takes HTML, turns it into JavaScript. Um, there, or actually turns it into TypeScript. There's an uglify step, so we actually go through your application and we reduce the, the size of it by removing dead code. We do tree shaking, all these sorts of things. And the build optimizer uh, was the result of a bunch of research that we did as part of that process. We, we looked at the state of the tools, we looked at the code that we were putting in and the code that they were giving back, and we were noticing that a bunch of uh, code was being included that shouldn't have been. So the, the tools, uh, you can almost say, weren't, weren't smart enough yet. And so what we did is we, we added in as a kind of intermediate step, this build optimizer that adds extra kind of uh, annotations and notes and marks things a little bit differently so that the tree shaking tools would know that code was pure or could be removed or could be uh, included kind of a single time instead of multiple times. Um, and so this this was a, a dramatic improvement to bundle sizes because the the build optimizer was helping all of the other tools in the tool chain do their jobs better. And the the reason I said at the beginning that most developers shouldn't have to worry about that is because we automatically run uh, build optimizer as part of any sort of uh, production build. So whenever you run an ng build dash dash prod, we're actually going to be running build optimizer for you automatically um, in the same way that we run AOT automatically. Uh, because we just want everyone that's doing any sort of production build to take advantage of these flags. Um, and we, we actually spent a lot of time with these flags, making sure that they would work for everyone uh, before we turn that on by default. So the, the reason that some people even know about Build Optimizer was because it was uh, a an, we made it opt-in in one of their early versions before we had enough uh, kind of public validation to make it default for everyone. But I think for the last year or so, it's been it's been on by default, and so everyone should be taking advantage of it. Okay, okay. Uh, I recently watched a video, uh, a video you, you did on, on YouTube called, uh, is it Dumb and Smart Components? Uh, yes. I believe. Yeah. How does that also help in performance? Does it have anything to do with performance as well? Uh, I don't think smart, uh, so smart and dumb components is the idea that some of your application is going to be purely presentational. And then other parts of your application can be focused on uh, business rules, uh, logic, 
uh, more of the, the kind of state management side of the, the world. Um, so it, it's a pattern that just basically makes some parts of your application more reusable, more isolated, um, so you can focus purely on presentation and then other parts more focused on purely kind of the business uh, rules and logic. I, I don't, I mean, a good architecture, maybe it would help you to think about the performance of your application if you knew that presentational components wouldn't be doing a bunch of extra work. So I, the only way I can see it helping performance is to help you understand your app better. Um, but in general, I, you could architect an app without them, with this, this division uh, just fine from a performance standpoint. Okay. So um, uh, you've been talking about architecture, architecture. Are there recommendations on how to architect your Angular application? Yeah, so um, there, there's definitely a few things that, that I would recommend. So uh, lazy loading is number one. So understanding what is in your initial bundle, what's in your initial route, understanding at any given part of the experience, what parts of the code are you forcing your users to load. Um, and one of the, the tools that we've added to help developers kind of understand this is something called bundle budgets. So now one of the features in your angular.json file that you can actually see is the ability to say, hey, warn me if my initial bundle gets above this size or error if it gets above this other size. So one of the, the changes that we're landing as part of v7 is actually some, we've added in some bundle budgets by default um, just to help developers oh, okay. not accidentally let their bundle sizes get too big. Because uh, the bundle size is really the, the kind of number one factor when it comes to startup performance. Okay, so how do you do that? How do you let it uh, uh, inform you that you've uh, reached the bundle budget? Yeah, so it's just a, a declarative setting that you can put in your Angular JSON. So uh, if you if you pull up an Angular JSON file and you open the uh, configurations for your production build, so configurations key and then production key under there, you can add a budgets key in there and then. Uh, in that budget key, you can add a budget of like type initial, and then you can say uh, maximum error, maximum warning to, to say, let me know, fail my build if my bundle size gets bigger than five megabytes, for example. Oh, wow. And is it available? Or is it not available? Or... So, so this is a Does feature that, that exists in 6x of Angular, so you can take advantage of that today. Um, and we're, oh, we're for new projects, so if you use the Angular CLI and you do ng new, we're going to be giving you a bundle budget out of the box. So just trying to push the, the whole web towards shipping smaller, faster apps. Oh, okay. okay. Uh, okay. So um, what is the team doing now uh, in order to improve performance aside what we've talked about? Sure, sure. So um, there's kind of two main areas that we're, we're spending a lot of time on right now. So the, the first is a uh, project that we're working on called Project Ivy. Um, this won't be landing in seven, but uh, this, this is where a lot of our energy is going. Uh, and we're basically changing the way that we render or the rendering pipeline for Angular. So we're updating the, the renderer and the compiler uh, to make it easier to tree shake your application. So the idea is if you don't use features of Angular, we don't want to include them in your bundle. And so to, to be able to take advantage of this, we actually had to kind of invert the entire control cycle of our runtime so that instead of Angular pulling your code in, what's going to happen after Ivy lands is that your code is going to be pulling in Angular. Um, and so the, the example we always kind of throw around is that if you build just a Hello World application that doesn't use any features of Angular, you could have a bundle size as small as like 3 KB, which uh, is a really wow. big deal to us. Um, the, the other major initiative that we have 
again, this is this is for the future, not not for the the shorter medium term. Uh, is we want to make it easier for Angular developers to serve their JavaScript. Um, so what I mean by serve is, uh, if you're in an Ionic context, this doesn't really matter because everything's local. Uh, but if you're if you're also hosting a PWA or a web application, then the way that you serve your JavaScript really matters. So uh, in the past, people would just throw it on like an Apache server, um, which is good, but not as good as, for example, a CDN. Uh, but then there, there's a level of intelligence you can put into your server beyond what a CDN is capable, taking advantage of things like server push, taking advantage of things like differential serving, where you can use your knowledge of the user and the, the user's browser to send down the right code for the user. And, and so an example of this is uh, you might want to support IE9 as part of your application using a bunch of the polyfills that we, we include in Angular. But you shouldn't be sending those same polyfills down to all of your Firefox users. And so this, this is a strategy called differential serving. Um, it's it's uh, not really used a ton, but we want to really make JavaScript developers better at serving their JavaScript. Because anytime you can send less code down to the browser, the startup performance is going to be better and your user outcomes are going to be better. So we're, we're getting into this whole new world of, of helping JavaScript developers on the, the server side as well. Okay, okay. Um, I have these two things I want to talk about. Uh, web workers and service workers. What, what's the difference and how are they used in Angular? Service worker is actually just a specific type of web worker. So a, a service worker or a web worker, this is an extra thread that you get in the browser. So almost everything you do in JavaScript is typically all single-threaded. So anything you do in JavaScript actually can block the rendering and the updates to the screen because it all happens in the UI thread. Um, but running code in a web worker means that you can do processes in that secondary thread. You can do data-heavy things um, and not actually slow down your app. Uh, but when it comes to service workers, you also get a few extra superpowers. So you can do things like offline caching. You can proxy internet requests. Uh, and you can really take control of your application uh, from that perspective. The, the other thing that, that service workers allow you to do is to do push notifications. So uh, there's a lot of kind of really cool features that you get from installing a service worker into an Angular application. But the, the most common is just the fact that we can keep all of the files local to a user's computer and not have to transfer them over the Internet when they load the application, which uh, means that you can effectively eliminate any round trip that you might need with the server. So, uh, for example, if you go to angular.io, we have a service worker that installs the angular.io web app onto your computer. And so the second time you come, instead of going to the network to get that uh, application, we go directly to the local browser cache and we can serve it up instantaneously. So let me let me ask this. Uh, so web workers help in uh, doing uh, data stuff, uh, maybe on a different thread while the UI presentation and other stuff also on a different thread. Am I right? Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, how do we take advantage of that as, as uh, Ionic developers? So um, we, we built a this thing called Platform Web Worker, where we, tr we are actually capable of running all of Angular's change detection in the web worker, um, which theoretically should improve performance. But what we've seen in the real world is that the browser machinery that synchronizes between the two threads or allows communication between the two threads 
um, depending on how much data you're pushing between the threads, this can actually slow down your app. Um, and so it, this is something you can try, you can experiment with, um, just in, in terms of running most of Angular in that web worker. But we, we haven't actually seen a bunch of real-world gains, and so we're, we're continuing to evolve that as the, the browsers continue to evolve. But the, the main area where you should really consider using a web worker is any sort of data processing. So anytime you, you need to do a lot of work on a little bit of data, it's very easy to send that data between the threads and then do that extensive processing. Maybe maybe you're doing uh, analysis of it. Maybe you're doing some sort of scientific modeling. Uh, all of that is a really good candidate to be done in a web worker and take that off of the main thread. Okay. So, um, well, I think uh, we're getting to the end. So any other advice on the performance do's and don'ts? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess the, the last piece that I, I would leave everyone with uh, is try your best to stay up to date, because I know both the, the folks at Ionic and uh, all the folks on the Angular team, we are trying to make things better for developers every day. And so if you get behind, if you get out of date, uh, you, you actually don't get to take advantage of a lot of the work we're doing, because um, we, we work very, very hard to, as I said, give users this great experience, and performance is a huge deal, and, and performance is a huge part of that. So. Uh, we've made it as easy as we can to stay up to date, so just make sure you're, you're taking in the, uh, kind of latest releases every couple, uh, every six or so months, uh, and you, you'll give your users a great experience. Okay, okay. Now, before, uh, we end, observables, does it have anything to do with, it? does it improve uh, performance? Yeah, so uh, observables are a, a stream of data, basically, that was uh, we, we use extensively in Angular. Uh, this comes out of the RxJS project. Um, and the, the reason this can drive performance is that because uh, it's, it's because it empowers developers to take advantage of, of what's called functional reactive programming, where everything that happens can be respon uh, in response to this kind of functional style of programming, which can mean that you can design your application, you can architect it in a way that means that uh, you only change something when it needs to be changed. Um, this, this isn't a silver bullet, and it, it's a whole lot of work to um, kind of architect applications and, and keep an eye on understanding where and how uh, one change in your application triggers and modifies the REST app. But, but doing this successfully can definitely lead to a, an improved architecture that's easier to reason about and it's easier to understand. Okay. Okay. I think uh, we, we we will talk more about observables in another uh, podcast. Uh, but for now, I think uh, we have what we need in order to improve our apps. Thank you very much. Awesome. Thank you time. so much for the time, and uh, I, I hope everyone has a good time improving the startup speed of their applications and uh, the runtime speed as well. Mm -hmm.